um, with us in worship today. We are starting a new series today called Verified. Uh, many of you in here will recognize the blue check mark uh, that is behind me. That is the blue check mark that Twitter uses to verify that an account is the actual account of the person whose name is on the account. So if it's a politician, if it's some actor, if it's some famous business person, if you see the blue check mark by their name, you know that those tweets are really coming from the account of that individual. If you do not see the blue check mark, that is someone who is imitating that person, that politician or actor or famous individual, and they're trying to put out fake tweets to stir up some controversy or create a buzz or whatever their motivation might be. And so if it's a real account, it is verified with the blue check mark. In our digital age, it is becoming more and more challenging to know whether an email or a social media post or other digital information is true and valid, or if it's a fake, if it's coming from someone who is not the person they claim to be. Undoubtedly, you have gotten emails from a person in Kenya who is a widow and has millions of dollars that her late husband left to her, and now she is dying of cancer, and she wants to transfer this money to the United States, and if you will just help her, She'll share her millions with you, and so you'll get $5 million. All you have to do is give her access to your bank accounts, and you'll get, you know, all of that money. We've all had those emails before. Now, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, here is an example of an actual email that I received, and this is exactly how it was worded to me. Dear customer... In a fact, you lend out a rent car at our car service. We are here to remind you that you got unpaid invoice. Do unpaid bill, an option to become the payments, the payment, we will contact your bank. In the next days, the, the payoff will go automatically out of your bank account. In order to avoid a problem in comprehension, I let a copy invoice for you as an attachment. I did not open that attachment, by the way. If you wish to declare dissatisfaction, we let you a fill blank with other bill informations in attachment to best regards, car service rental cars, period. Now, it did not take me long to figure out this wasn't real. Uh, mainly because I had not rented a car in the months leading up to this email. Uh, but the other reason was the grammar is beyond bad. I, I mean, I can't imagine a car rental company hiring anyone who did not have at least a basic grasp of the English language to send out emails to customers about unpaid bills. The truth is, my six-year-old son, I think, had crafted an email that was better grammatically than this particular email. The other clue that this was a fake was I have never rented a car before, and they've said to me, hey, just take the car. We'll bill you later, <laughs> and if you don't pay it, we'll just contact your bank and get the money that way. They've always asked for a credit card, and so pretty quickly, I was able to dismiss this email as not being valid. However, there are people who have been scammed. Uh, there are emails that have come, and people have fallen victim 
to these scam emails. Or perhaps it was a call from someone claiming to be from the IRS, and there was an you know, unpaid tax bill, and if you didn't pay it right then by wiring money, then they were going to send out the sheriff. Or perhaps you've purchased something, and you thought this item is the real genuine deal. And only later you discovered that it was just a cheap imitation of what was real. Sometimes it's hard to tell. And sometimes it's hard to tell in our spiritual lives as well. Although this is changing, uh, we still live in a Christian culture where the majority of people say they follow Christ. They claim the label Christian. And yet for many, many of those, it is not a genuine valid faith. It is a faith that is in label only, but it's not a genuine inner change in their life. And that's what we're going to look at in this series. The book of 1 John will be our guide. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to 1 John, it is towards the end of your Bible. It's right after a book called 2 Peter, right before 2 John. Uh, We will today do an overview of 1 John, and then starting next week, we will dive into the series and see what it says. So today I want to talk about 1 John and why it was written and who wrote 1 John and the context. So the first thing to know is that this book was authored by John, the apostle of Jesus. Uh, This same John also wrote the gospel of John. Uh, He wrote 1, 2, and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. John was part of the inner circle of Jesus, uh, along with Peter and John's brother James. And so when you read the Gospels, you'll see many times that Jesus went off and went. those who went with him were Peter, James, and John. They were, they were part of the inner circle of Jesus. John was known as the beloved disciple, meaning he, in particular, was very close with Jesus. Uh, He was given, John, the responsibility of caring for Mary, the mother of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and he looked at Mary and said to John, your mother. And looked at Mary and said, your son. Giving to John the responsibility of caring for uh, Jesus' mother. Around 80 AD, according to historians... John was sentenced to die in the newly built Roman Colosseum by being dunked in a large container of boiling oil. However, he emerged unharmed and as a result, the spectators there that day converted to Christianity. And so the Roman emperor, frustrated that he couldn't kill the guy, then exiled him or banished him to the Isle of Patmos, um, this island that Uh, was a secluded place where John wrote the book of Revelation. Eventually, he escaped or was released from um, uh, his exile, and he became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And from there, he likely wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And historians say that John lived to 98 uh, A.D., died an old man. He was the longest living of the apostles. Um, He spent his latter years pastoring the church in Ephesus. Mary uh, lived with him, and she was part of the church at Ephesus as well. Um, and, and And he sort of served as a bishop over the churches of that region. So the audience... Uh, While no specific audience is mentioned, clearly it was written as a pastoral letter 
to a congregation or several different congregations, and most likely it was written to several small congregations around the city of Ephesus. So why did John write this letter? Um, John wrote 1 John because of a heresy known as Gnosticism that had invaded the churches. Um, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, uh, which is spelled with a silent G like our word nat, and it means knowledge. And so Gnostics claim to have special knowledge about God and about spiritual things. Now, there were a lot of different um, threads of Gnosticism to say that all Gnostics believe this is, is sort of difficult to do. Um, however, their main teaching was that we are in physical bodies and everything that is physical is evil, but we have spiritual bodies and everything that is spiritual is good. And so our souls, our spirits, they are good but our bodies are evil. Um, this is not a Christian teaching. They really took teachings from uh, some from Judaism, some from some pagan religions, a lot from Plato and other Greek philosophies, and they combined all of that together, and they came up with this idea that everything in the physical world is bad and everything that is spiritual is good. So here's how that played out, basically in two ways. Gnostics believe in an indifference to moral or ethical behavior. And here's how the logic went. They said that our spirits are good and our bodies are evil and our spirits are trapped in these bodies, but what we do in the bodies really doesn't affect our spirit. So you can be good spiritually, you can be growing spiritually, you can be healthy spiritually, but because our bodies and spirits are separate, you can do whatever you want to in the body, and it doesn't affect the spirit. Um, this really played out in sexual immorality, which fit in well with the Roman Greek culture of that time. I mean, very much in that culture, a lot of different immorality was accepted. And so those who followed Gnosticism were able to say, well, I can do whatever I want in the body because that does not affect my soul or my spirit. That's the first way it played out. The second way was a sense of arrogance and lovelessness. So those who were part of this Gnostic group believed that they were of a higher class spiritually than just the regular old Christians like me and you. That they somehow had attained this special knowledge, and because they had this special knowledge, um, they were above the common masses. And if you ever question them on their thinking, their beliefs, or their behavior, they would say something like, well, God just hasn't revealed to you this special knowledge yet. Or you just, you just don't understand like I understand these deeper truths of the faith. We have come to this deeper understanding. And so those who are part of this group had rampant immorality, many of them, and as well, a sense of pride and arrogance. Here was the problem. They had Christian labels they attached to themselves. They, they even read Christian scriptures. They claimed to be followers of Christ. They used Christian jargon. They talked like and in many ways looked like Christians, and yet they were lost. 
they were just as lost as lost can be. There is something we're seeing very similar in our culture today. If you're not familiar with the term progressive Christianity, it is something that is on the rise. It is something we are seeing more and more of. Now, I'm not saying that all progressive Christians aren't Christian. It's hard to nail down everyone who says they're a progressive Christian, just like it was hard to say all Gnostics believe this. However, those who who buy into the tenets of progressive Christianity have the label Christian, but their beliefs are not Christian at all. If you're not familiar with this movement, uh, let me give you what are the four basic beliefs of those who are progressive Christians. And this is a general overview. It's hard to say all the time everybody believes this. Here's, Here's what progressive Christians believe. Number one, progressive Christians view Jesus as an example rather than a savior. Jesus, they say, was sent by God to teach us and show us the right pattern for living. In other words, he did not come to die for our sins. Jesus did not come to save us, but rather to show us how to save ourselves. I found an article by um, an Episcopal progressive Christian who really outlined well this particular belief and their belief on the resurrection. Progressive Christians debate about whether or not the resurrection really happened or not. But even those who believe the resurrection actually happened say that it wasn't so that we could gain salvation. It was so that the message of the fact that we can save ourselves could continue. They call this the moral uh, theory, uh, moral influence theory of the uh, resurrection. Here's how it goes. So what is the moral influence theory? In a nutshell, it is the teaching that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, not from sin. It is a doctrine that focuses on positive moral change as the heart of the Christian faith. We are taught to love as God loves us, as demonstrated through Jesus of Nazareth. When we come to this knowledge and understanding and accept it and strive to live our lives accordingly, loving as we are loved, forgiving as we are forgiven, then we will discover our own atonement. That word atonement is a big church word for salvation. Then we will discover our own salvation. We are able to save ourselves. That's the first tenet of progressive Christianity. The second one is progressive Christians believe that we are born essentially good rather than sinful individuals. Meaning, we are not born as sinners. Rather, we become sinners because of our environment. And so progressive Christians say that our greatest need is not for a Savior, but for direction and correction and nurturing. And they say that through following the example of Jesus, then we are able to live our lives in the correct way. We are able to get this direction of our lives. Um, Therefore, in progressive Christian circles, there is a downplaying of sin and there is no discussion whatsoever about the wrath of God or the judgment of God for sin. Essentially, we can save ourselves through right living. Number three, progressive Christians seek to be inclusive rather than exclusive. Progressive Christians say that they make their tent very wide 
In fact, the only ones they really exclude from their tent are evangelical Christians. Basically, everybody else fits under their tent. And they do this by saying that we are both welcoming and affirming to those who are not like us. Again, with the asterisk besides evangelical Christians. Now, let me define those two terms because those are two very different terms. When we use the word welcoming, that means that all are invited. And we as a church and every evangelical church that I'm aware of is a welcoming church. If you do not believe the way that our church believes, you are more than welcome to come here. If your lifestyle is different from the lifestyle that we say the Bible uh, promotes and teaches, and you want to come here, you are more than welcome. We welcome anyone and everyone with arms wide open to become a part of our church. But, but here's the difference. We do not affirm everyone regardless of what they believe or what their lifestyle is. There's a difference between welcoming those to come and worship with us, to be a part of this, and affirming that their lifestyle or their beliefs are the correct beliefs. In progressive Christianity, both in intellectual beliefs and in lifestyle, they both welcome and affirm. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, both of these come from Bethel United Church of Christ in Beaverton, Oregon. And under their beliefs, they say two things. One is about their acceptance of those who think differently from them. And here's what they say. Christianity is the truth for us. But it is not the only truth. This principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. We share our lives with people who are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist. We experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. To deny that is to deny that God can only draw people with one way. That simply isn't borne out in our experience. The power of the Christian faith to transform lives does not require it to be exclusively true, which that's not true, but exclusivity is born out of fear. The fear that there is one train to God, and if you aren't on the right train, you'll go to hell. We believe that there are many trains, and God welcomes them all. So they say, even though our tradition is Christian, if you believe differently, we welcome and affirm your view as being valid and right. Here's the second thing. They also affirm lifestyles that are different. And this is borne out in the LGBTQ arena more than anything else. And here is what they say. We support full inclusion and equality for transgender, lesbian, bisexual, gay, and questioning persons. Now, there's a difference between welcoming those who struggle in these areas and affirming those. And we as a church say we welcome anyone and everyone to come to our church, but we do not affirm those lifestyles any more than we affirm adultery or murder or anything else the Bible calls sin. In progressive Christianity, even if your beliefs don't align, asterisk, evangelical Christians, you're not welcome. If your beliefs don't align or lifestyle don't align, we accept. Okay, now here's the fourth thing. Progressive Christians affirm rather than challenge the values of our culture. 
Now, to be fair, progressive Christians would not agree with the wording of that sentence, the way that I phrased it. However, when you go down the list of hot topics, abortion, gay marriage, um, the way that evolution is taught in schools, Christian displays in public places, all of those, you go down those hot topic issues, they are going to align with culture more than traditional Christianity. So, even though they accept the label Christian, they're not necessarily Christian in their beliefs. That's exactly what John's audience was facing in their day. They looked around and they said, these people are, are, who are the Gnostics, they kind of look Christian, kind of smell like Christians, kind of sound like Christians. You know, they talk about Jesus. There are all these things that make me think maybe they're a Christian, but I'm just not sure. So John wrote this letter to these congregations to answer two questions. One, how can I identify if the Gnostic teachings are right or wrong? They were basically saying, we're not sure they're nice people. They seem to be very smart, and they seem to know what they're talking about. And they bring in all these Greek philosophies, and they'll even quote Scripture. And and I'm confused, John. Are they right or are they wrong? And then beyond that, the second question they were asking is, how can I know that I'm a follower of Christ? Remember, in these congregations, these were new believers. These were individuals who had only been following Christ for weeks or months or just a few years. And so they wanted to know, John, am I truly a follower of Christ? Which is exactly what we're going to dive into in this series. Before we start reading 1 John, let me go through and give you an overview of what John says are the three characteristics of a verified true faith in Christ. This is on your message map if you downloaded it. According to John, there are three things that that are necessary for a verified faith. The first is that you have right beliefs. Here's what John said in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Secondly, he said, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Now, there are other verses and passages as well that we will go through in this series Basically, John's saying, look, you can't just believe anything and still accept the label Christian. There are certain beliefs that are necessary in order to be a follower of Christ. Here's the second thing. Not only right uh, beliefs, but as well right actions. 1 John 2, 3, here's what he wrote. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And then secondly, he says this, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, we need to be careful here. The same John who wrote these words also wrote in John chapter 3 the words of Jesus where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son 
that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. John very much believed that salvation is by grace alone. You cannot be righteous enough to to gain salvation. You cannot do enough right to earn your way into heaven. John would have championed that every chance he got. Here's what he's saying. However, when you have that kind of belief land in your life, when when you uh, become a follower of Christ, it is life-changing. And if you're going through life and you say, yes, I believe in Christ, I believe John 3.16, and yet in your lifestyle there is zero change, John would say there's a problem. Man, something's not right there. Okay, finally the third thing. So right beliefs, right actions, and number three is having the right love. 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. In other words, an evidence of a verified faith is a love for other followers of Christ. And so if that isn't present, then John would say you need to question whether or not your faith is truly valid. Okay, let's see how this plays out. Uh, Let's suppose for just a moment that you have the right beliefs, that you have the right actions, but you do not have the right love. So in other words, your beliefs, man, right down the line. I mean, they are traditional, orthodox, you know, all of that is right. And the right actions. I mean, you're following what the Bible says to do. Morally speaking, you're a very good person, but you do not have the right love. What do you get? You get the self-righteous jerk. This is the guy that comes to church and his Bible is really, really thick, much bigger than my Bible. And you see all these color-coded tabs that come out of the top and he's always going to Bible studies and he's reading books on theology and he knows more than the pastor knows. And he likes to make that apparent when he emails the pastor to tell him what the pastor got wrong in his sermon. And this is an individual that's got all of the head knowledge and knows it all backwards and forwards. And as well, this is an individual that does the right things. He, morally speaking, is very good, like super, super good. Let me ask you, when you're driving down the road and you see a yellow light, what does that mean? Punch the gas, right, we all know that. Get through the light before it changes, right? Not this guy. No, he slows down and stops even before it turns red, right? When he's driving down the road, if it's a speed limit of 35 miles an hour, and he sees he's over 36, he taps the brake just to make sure. I mean, he, here is a guy who follows the letter of the law. His actions are right. And yet, he doesn't possess the right love. He doesn't serve in the church, doesn't have time to. He has to go to another Bible study. Huh? Doesn't show love to others. In fact, he really likes it when others mess up. He, he secretly enjoys it when others fail Because then he gets to feel better about himself. He doesn't grieve over the sin of someone else. Inside his spirit, there's there's a sense of joy because now he looks even better. So if if you've got the right beliefs and the right actions but not the right love, does that really make you a follower of Christ? I mean, you you tend to get the self-righteous jerk or what you get is the Lone Ranger Christian. So maybe they're not the self-righteous jerk. Um, They just... 
don't ever come to church because they don't need church, right? I mean, they say, hey, I believe the right things. I'm a good guy. I'm moral. It's just Jesus and me. I'm happiest out on the lake talking to God while I'm fishing on Sunday morning. I don't need to serve. I don't need to be there. You know, they, they just don't really care about anybody else. So John would say, you know, you've got to have all three. Something's not right here. Okay, let's suppose for a second that you have the right beliefs, sorry, the right actions and the right love, but you do not have the right beliefs. So morally, very good, doing the right things. You're, in, you're involved in church, you're showing love to others, you're in a, a community of faith. You know, you serve, you do all of those things, but you don't have the right beliefs. Either your beliefs are really off, like what we talked about with Gnosticism or the progressive Christian uh, belief system. Either your beliefs are really off or you're just kind of atheological. You, you, just, you just don't really think about it. You don't care. You, you really don't like it when the pastor preaches on doctrine. You know, you want to hear a sermon on, on how to raise kids, you know, or how to get along with your neighbor. You know, you don't, you don't ever go to Bible studies. You'll serve, but you don't want to go to Bible studies. Someone opens the Bible, you don't want to read the Bible. You know, you, don't, you, you just don't care. You're atheological. You look at theology and the Bible the way I look at nuclear engineering. Uh, I know it's important. I know somebody cares about it, but it's not me. And I have no interest in researching that. Uh, and and that, that's kind of you. Let's say that you have right actions, right love, but not, uh, not, not right beliefs. What do you get? The good guy. This is a guy that everybody likes comes to church he's always happy to serve always happy to jump in he's nice he's not condemning to anyone he's always happy to help in any way possible but he just doesn't believe the right things and john would say just being a good guy isn't enough okay so let's suppose that you have the right beliefs and the right love but not the right actions believe all the right things you care about others, you serve, you, you're nice to others. But morally speaking, your lifestyle doesn't match with what you say you believe. Here you get the hypocrite. Now, we have to be careful because to a degree, all of us are hypocrites. We've all said one thing and done something else. And if you've never done that, you're not a parent. We've all done that before. And, and I've done it many times. I have stood here many times before and said, the Bible says that husbands, you need to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And yet in my personal life, I've certainly not always loved my wife the way that Christ loved the church. We have all been hypocrites at times. That's not what John is talking about here. He is not talking about messing up. He is not talking about, ooh, I sinned, and you know, maybe I even did that sin again, and the next week I did that sin again. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about continual, unrepentant, habitual sin without any desire to change at all. And John is saying this, salvation is by grace alone. It is only, only, only because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. There, there is no way we can earn salvation. However, when you become a follower of Christ, it should change your life and it should change your actions. And John is saying, if you're continuing in sin without any desire to change, without any desire to repent, 
doing the same thing over and over, if you're looking exactly like the world around you, then John would say, you need to call into question whether or not your faith is a genuine, verified faith. About this time last year, a guy named Ravi Zacharias passed away. Some of you are going to know exactly what I'm about to say if you followed his ministry. Uh, Ravi Zacharias was a Christian author and speaker, and in my opinion, one of the best that has ever lived. Uh, He grew up in India. He eventually moved with his family to Canada. Then he settled in the United States, was headquartered in Atlanta, and had a worldwide ministry where he would go and speak, uh, but not just speak. He was an apologist who could defend the, uh, the Christian faith against any other worldview like no one I had ever seen. I mean, he could go toe-to-toe with anyone in a debate and show how the Christian worldview is the most logical worldview. Um, I would listen to his sermons all the time. I remember leading a home team years ago, and we watched a series of his sermons on video and just how um, in awe I was of how he was able to take these truths and frame them in a way that just made so much sense. About a year ago, he was diagnosed with a fast-growing, or a couple of years ago, with a fast-growing malignant tumor. Um, and it, it took his life. He died almost exactly one year ago. In the weeks after his death, accusations began to surface. And a full investigation happened. And it was discovered that he had been living a sexually immoral life for well over a decade. Um, I was crushed, literally wept over reading that. Um, other pastors I know were absolutely crushed. Here was a guy who did not exhibit a whole lot of flashiness. He wasn't one of these that you look at this Christian leader and they fail and you go, well, I kind of knew it all along. You know, they just seem to be in it for themselves. Here was a guy that was a pastor to pastors in so many ways. And yet it came out that for over a decade, he had been engaging in numerous inappropriate relationships When he was given opportunity after opportunity to repent, he covered up and he denied and he continued in his sin. I listened to a podcast right after all of this was revealed by a guy named Harry Reeder, who was a pastor in Birmingham. Uh, Harry Reeder knew Ravi Zacharias personally. And in this meeting, he was asked some questions about Ravi and specifically about his salvation. Here's what Harry Reeder said. Lots of people ask me, was Ravi saved? I don't know. I don't know his soul. I don't know his heart. Some will say, what about King David? King David in the Old Testament committed adultery and murder, and then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and when he was confronted, he repented of his sin, and he was called after that horrible, immoral failure. He was still called a man after God's own heart. He was someone who we would say today, yes, even though he failed, even though he sinned, he was certainly saved. So people would say, what about King David? Yeah, well, David repented. When Nathan brought charges against him, David repented. When these accusations surfaced against Ravi, there was no repentance. On the contrary, there was avoidance. It's sad to think that someone who had this much influence, who inspired so many people, who taught so many people, He himself wasn't a Christian. It's sad to think that. And I don't know. I don't know the condition of his soul. I don't know the condition of his heart no more than anyone else does. But I know what John says here. That if we 
claim to follow Christ, and yet our lifestyle does not exhibit that at all, that we need to call into question whether or not our faith is a verified, genuine faith. Here's the other thing I know, that in our Christian culture, it is easy to take that label without ever having actually had an experience with Jesus. Meaning you can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to a Christian school. You can take the label Christian onto your life like you take the label American or like you take the label Republican or like you take the label Democrat. You take it as just another thing that you do because it's part of our culture and it's part of your tradition. And so you say, yes, of course, I am Christian, but no change has ever happened in your life. In just a moment, I want to pray for you because I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are those of you in here, and that is you. And you would say, yeah, my life has never really changed. I I grew up going to church. I was dedicated like these children this morning. I went to Christian school. I knew the right things. I I could talk about it. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. I've just always been a Christian. But you've never actually had a moment where your life was changed by Jesus Christ. And what I want to do is I want to pray for you. And when I'm done praying for you, I want you to stay seated because I've got some further instructions. If you would, let's pray together. Father, I pray right now for those whom you're speaking to and that you are drawing to yourself. And God, we know that in our culture that is, that is Christian, that has this Christian heritage, that one of the dangers of that is that we can think we are saved, that we can think we are Christian, and yet no transformation has ever happened in our life. And Father, it is so easy for many, many, many in our culture to think that they are headed down the right road, and yet they are not. So God, I pray right now for that person. I pray for that teenager or that man or that woman That God, right now, that you would convince them that today is the day that they need to give their life to you. And they need to push aside any doubts, any fears. That God, I pray that you'd give them the courage to to not wonder what their friends will think or what their coworkers will think or what family members will think or, or to worry about what this will mean tomorrow that more than anything else, they will want right now your spirit in their life. They will want that assurance of salvation that more than anything else, they will crave that beyond anything this world has to offer. God, I pray that you give them the courage today to make that right, to absolutely 100% make sure that their relationship with you is exactly what it's supposed to be. And that it's not just a label, that it's not just a heritage, that it's not something that they've just done in the past and so they're still doing it today but that it is a genuine verified faith in you father through your holy spirit i pray that you would speak right now clearly to their hearts in jesus name i pray amen okay there may be some of you and right now you're saying that was me i'm the one that you were speaking to And and here's how you know that God is speaking to you. Here's how you know that God is speaking to your heart. Your chest is a little tighter than it should be. Your heart is beating faster 
than it should be. And I promise you, if that's what's happening in your life right now, that is not from me. I am not that good at speaking to cause a physical reaction inside your body. That is called the Holy Spirit. And right now, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, today is the day for salvation. Today is the day that you need to go from just being a cultural Christian or labeled as a Christian to a genuine, verified follower of Christ. And I promise you that if you make that decision today, that you will never regret it. That it will be the greatest decision that you have ever made in your life beyond any other decision you've ever made. That decision to follow Christ will change your life and will change your eternity. It makes all the difference in the world.